Okay, so for the uh, CD, this morning is Sunday. It's August 10th, 2008. Our message this morning is called Transitions. I've asked the church to turn to Joshua, the first chapter. We're going to read here in just a minute, but I want to talk to you about a transition for a moment. Transition means various things depending on its context. We'll read you a couple definitions. Uh, the dictionary defines the noun transition as the process of change from one form, state, style, or place to another. The process of changing from one state, form, style to another. Incidentally, it's also a medical term. Uh, Castle experienced this soon and already has several times. When a woman is pregnant, at some point she transitions from pregnancy to a very active stage of labor, and it is called transition. This is the moment right before uh, the onset of a birth. It's called transition. So when we're talking about transition today, we're talking about something being transferred from one state, form, style to another, and it giving birth or life. That's the idea. So are you in Joshua 1.8? Yes. Yeah. A teacher that I admire, somebody that, uh, that I read a lot of his work, is a guy named Rob Bell. And one of his quotes that I just happen to like, says, Before all the big language and grand claims, the story of Jesus was about a Jewish man living in a Jewish region among Jewish people, calling people back to the way of the Jewish God. Now, this may seem blatantly obvious, but I assure you through church history it's not been. So as we look at transitions today and passing something from one person to another or one people group to another, I wanted to start with the Jewish educational system. I wanted to show you the context in which, during the first century, Jews were educated and raised. The way things that were transitioned from one generation to the next occurred. And then we want to examine that. In Joshua 1.8, we see this phrase. It says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Does that literally mean that you should shove the book of Deuteronomy in your mouth? Probably not, huh? God knows that what we talk about, we think about. I met the information minister for Benjamin Netanyahu one, one trip to Israel. And he said, you know, the media is one of the more powerful forms of, uh, or systems upon the planet. He said, they cannot tell you what to think, but they most certainly can determine what you think about. In other words, what they pump through that television constantly becomes the topic of conversation. God is not trying to force upon you certain thoughts. But He knows that if you will meditate on His teaching and His instruction, it will change the way that you think. So He says, Do not let this book of the law depart from your mouth. Meditate on it day and night so that you may be careful to do everything written in it. Then you will be prosperous and successful. Being obedient to God's instruction in our life always produces what God calls success. Having said that, as we're thinking about what we're going to lay out as a Jewish educational system, I wanted to quote one of the more famous Jews who is post-Jesus. This guy has gone down in history with the name Rambam. How could you forget a name like that? Uh, his actual name is Moshe Maimonides. Now, why would I quote somebody who never embraced the fullness of the Messiah? 
The reason that I'm quoting him is because he is a part of a tradition that extends back in Judaism even before Jesus. And I want you to hear even 11 centuries after, forgive me for saying it this way, but the degradation of Judaism. I want you to hear how strong the desire still was in the 11th century to educate children. Listen to what he says. Every person in Israel is obligated to be engaged in Torah learning. Whether one is poor or wealthy, whether one is whole in body or afflicted with suffering, whether one is young or one is old and feeble, even a poor person who is supported by charity and goes from one door to another seeking benevolence, even the man who is supporting his wife and children, everyone is required to find a set time during the day and the night to study the Word. As it is said, you shall go over it again and again, day and night. Deep embedded within the culture of the Bible is an emphasis on God's Word. This emphasis was supposed to be something that we literally dwelt upon in our thoughts. Something that we meditated on day and night. There's a popular scripture in Deuteronomy 6. Judah, what is daddy's job as far as you're concerned? Do you hear that, saints? To impress the Word upon him. I learned that from a nation whose cry is Shema Yisrael Adonai Eloheinu Adonai Ehad. The Lord our God, the Lord is one. It was not only a declaration that God is... Uh, the only God, no God besides Him, but it was also an affirmation that He's our King and His Word is something that will constantly be on our minds. And in Deuteronomy 6, I want you to hear this as we move forward. It's 6, starting in verse 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, with all of your strength. These commandments that I give you today are to be upon your hearts. Impress them on your children. When we think of Bible learning, we tend to think of grasping concepts. We tend to think of accepting doctrines or creeds. Listen to these action-oriented words in which God tells His nation to get the Word upon their hearts. Listen to the way in which He says to love Him with all of your heart, soul, and strength. He says, talk about them. That's an action. That's something that we need to be doing. Speaking His Word. Talk about them when you sit at home. When you walk along the road. You hear how function and action oriented Judaism is? When you are doing things, do them with God. When you are doing anything, talk about Him. He says, talk about them when you sit at home and when you walk along the road, when you lie down and when you get up. Tie them as symbols on your hands. Bind them on your foreheads. Write them on the door frames of your houses and your gates. If you put this all together, the Lord says to be with Him heart, soul, and strength. To have a 100% buy-in in Him is to be displayed in your actions, in your talking, in your walking in your going to bed, in your getting up, that it's to be as if it were bound upon you, written, stamped, impressed upon you. This is far different than membership to a Christian country club. This is far different than an intellectual assent or a knowledge that Jesus is the only way. 
or that you can quote Romans 9, 10, and 10. What we're describing is the kind of relationship that a man and woman would fall into love with each other. Do you remember that the first time you had a serious crush on someone, you spent all day and night on the phone with them? You couldn't get enough of their presence. The first time Jennifer and I began to date, her father came in the next morning and we were still on the phone from the night before because we could not get enough of each other's presence. This is what God's Word is urging as the basis for education. Now, it's amazing, and I taught this last week, but teachable moments in our lives usually don't come in, in this setting. Teachable moments are not usually, Judah is not usually going to be impressed during a sermon in a way that it changes his life. The teachable moments come when Judah is with Dad while he's walking along the road, while he's going to bed, while he's getting up, while he's talking. Judah will experience something by following closely in his father's footsteps, and this is a form of discipleship. Josephus, pretty famous historian, had this to say about what Jews thought about education during the time of Jesus. He says that he remarked about education that it wasn't seen as a luxury or even as an option. Education was the key to survival. The Torah was seen as so central to life that if you lost it, you had lost everything. He then added these words, Above all else, we Jews pride ourselves on the education of our children. During the time of Jesus, Israel stood out among the nations of the world as investing in their children. They stood out in a way that other historians commented. In fact, one of the larger debates during Jesus' time was how old does a child have to be before we begin seriously teaching them? The question among rabbis was settled. It's recorded in the Talmud and it says it this way. Under the age of six, we do not receive a child as a pupil. From six upwards, we accept him and we stuff him with the Torah, with God's Word, as an ox stuffs himself with grain. One of the reasons that we've done what we've done here is because in those three classrooms in the back, we want our teachers to take honey and rub it on the children's lips and read them the Word of God so that their earliest associations with the Word are that it is sweet, although it can be difficult. One of the first things that we want with our children is them to see in our deeds what we profess in our creeds. The reason so often pastors' kids are horrible is because pastors are not in their deed what they profess in their creed. And the evidence is in their children. Having said that, I am very careful not to throw a stone in any direction because my kids are approaching the teenage years. And kids are kids everywhere. Having said that, your life should leave a mark on the people around you. Deuteronomy went so far in the 11th chapter, and I'll spare you the reading of this, to reinstate all of the things that you're supposed to do about walking, talking, tying, binding, and then go so far as to say, I'm setting before you both a blessing and a curse today. It's amazing that the paradox of God, God is big enough that He can say something that can both be a blessing and a curse to you. The speed limit is a blessing if it saves your life. The speed limit feels like a curse if you're falling under its penalty. I wouldn't know anything about that, but I've heard. A budget can be a blessing when it organizes your life. A budget can be a restraining 
terrible weight upon your life if it's too restrictive. It all has to do with the way that it's approached. But the Jews wanted to educate their children. I want to read you one more passage from the Mishnah. I'm paraphrasing this one. It says, The ties between a teacher and the student take precedence over that of a father and son. Your father brought you into this world and your teacher will show you how to enter the world to come. Saints, tell me that's not profound. And can you hear echoes of Jesus' teaching in that? If anyone does not love me more than, or if anybody does not hate his mother, father, he's not worthy of being my disciple. See, these teachings were ingrained in Judaism and Jesus was not dropped into a vacuum. God had prepared a culture for their king so that they would be compatible with each other. Sin and pride are the only things that kept it from happening in mass. Having said that, if a teacher shows us how to come into the next world, how closely do you think that you ought to follow the teacher? And by the way, when I say next world, don't think of off-world experience. We're talking about the new renovated world. Most of you that are here every week know that. Learning from our rabbi's actions is expressed in this way. It was said by Jose Ben Yozer, cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi. Cover yourself in the dust of your rabbi. That sounds kind of awkward to the Western mind, doesn't it? But if you were raised in first century Israel with no paved roads, and you walked everywhere you went, and you were from somebody by watching where they walked, they talked, being with them when they went to bed, being with them when they woke up, tying words upon you so that you could memorize them, the vision that this creates is that the teacher is walking and the students are following so closely and so attentively that the dust his sandals kicks up falls upon them. Now, we have a hard time with that kind of learning in Western Christianity because what we want is to sit for an hour and be entertained. In fact, we're going to draw a giant box. We're going to put God in the box in our 14 points of doctrine and we're going to say, here's what I want from you, Pastor. I want you to tell me what I already know about God but I want you to do it in a new and more exciting way. How sad is that? There's no real learning that can occur that way. In fact, we've all compromised. We've agreed. I will never offend you because we're only going to speak about these things. I will never challenge you or promote real learning in your life because all we're going to do is talk about what we've already agreed upon for the sake of unity. Is that really unity? Is it unity when everybody stands and says no one will contend with the enemy? Or is it just cowardice? Well, I'll leave that decision for you. Do you hear echoed in Jesus' words, shake the dust from your feet when someone won't listen? These sayings predate... Hey, Joe. These sayings predate Jesus. Does that mean then that Jesus was guilty of a copyright infringement? Jesus is the Word. What it shows is that the very character of God was displayed in the culture that birthed the Messiah and that the Messiah is the very fullest representation of that, that He is the very perfect image of God. And then when we look at what He says and what He does, it's what the nation of Israel was always supposed to express. And He is their head. In fact, He's even called Israel. Having said that, our last bit of education about the Jewish educational system before we get into the meat of our message today has to do with the houses of learning in Israel. Now, I left 
a section in your brochure for notes. Some of you are note-taking parents, some aren't. Some of you are blessed with incredible recollection. Some of you might need to write it. In Israel, what we would do at age six is we had a house called Bet Sefer. This is called House of the Book. Bet always means house of in Hebrew. Sefer means book. From six to ten years old, those four-year period, what you would do is you would memorize the first five books of the Bible. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Now, when we're speaking of memorizing these things, you need to understand, number one, a child's mind between six and ten is like a sponge. Best time to learn languages, best time to learn all kind of things. But then secondly, built into this text are acrostics, uh, things like NASA, uh, National Aeronautics Space Association, built into the text. Also, the rhythm and meter of the Scripture is written in a way that lends itself to memorization. Something that's furthermore is how often have you had to think about what signs meant when you're driving? We grow up in cars. We're driving down the road. We see signs. It's almost inbred in us exactly what they mean because we've seen through function constantly what they do. So memorizing these first five books was something that every Israeli child was supposed to do. Now, the next house is called Bet Talmud. Bet is house of. Talmud is learning. This was a little different. It's for ages 10 to 14, and not every child made it this far. They didn't graduate from this. The first house is something that all Israelites were expected to do. Uh, only a very small percentage would not graduate from Bet Sefer. But Bet Talmud, the percentages start to narrow, and here's why. The 39 books that were the Old Testament canon called the Tanakh, were expected to be memorized by the time you were 14. That seems almost impossible to me. And yet, I have not heard Beatles songs played in my home since I was a little kid, and I don't have any problems remembering the words to Hey Jude. Uh, don't have any problem... Rem- well, there's a few I do. I don't know what monkey fingers are that hang below your knees. and I don't know some of those songs. But my point was... Yeah, nobody ever did, right? I think I, I think it's that Paul... Ringo. We're not preaching about the Beatles this morning. What I'm telling you is that a culture was shaped by this, so it lent itself to memorization. We're going somewhere with this. Not everybody could do this. Could you relate to not being able to memorize 39 books? Memorize them to someone else's satisfaction? So the dropout rate here was fairly high. What else is happening to people between 10 and 14? All right, don't say it. They're in the room and they'll get scared. But there are other life changes going on. And they're maturing. So during the time period where they are maturing, something's happening. They're reaching their capacity of learning. And some are being driven towards the things that they have an aptitude for, like carpentry or farming or the trades of their fathers, while a small select group is able to do this and graduate to the third class. So by this time, what we're saying is that 90% of all Israelites stop in the second school. 10% graduate but apply to the third. The third is called Bet Midrash, the house of study or understanding. This lasts from 14 to 30 years old. Isn't that crazy? You know why? During this time period... 
you not only needed to memorize all of the 39 books, but all of the traditions, all of the oral law. And more importantly, you applied to a rabbi. You looked at his yoke, which was his way of life, his teaching, his mantle of authority, how he applied the Scriptures, and you said, I think I want to sit under that one. But a rabbi might only take, I don't know, something like 12 students. The most famous rabbis in history took 70, at least the ones that some say are famous. But normally it was a fairly small group of people so that they could be hand-taught. Now this is an amazing thing because what would happen is let's suppose that I apply to the rabbi of Stephen Richards and what I want is to learn his yoke. I've examined it. I said the way that he applies himself is unlike all of the others. I'm drawn to him. I believe it's God's hand. Stephen would then examine me by asking me questions. I've asked. I've put myself out there. I've said, I've memorized the 39 books. I'm ready. I want to be your student. Stephen would examine me, and for the vast majority of Israeli children, what they would hear is, I'm sorry, you're not able to accept my yoke. You are not capable of becoming like me. Can you imagine, how does it feel for young people to get rejected from the college they want to go to? devastating. What would it be like then to have put all of this effort, all of this time, and been rejected by a rabbi? Maybe this lends some idea, some credence to why older men, men who are not 14 anymore, it's debatable how old they are, could be in their family businesses. They're not under some rabbi. And yet when a rabbi comes and says, come follow me, they drop everything they're doing and go follow in His footsteps. Because the greatest honor in Israel. Now let me ask you something. If these men are working in their family businesses and not under the yoke of some rabbi, what does that mean? You got it. They were dropouts. They didn't make it through all three schools. Not many of you were noble when you were called, Paul said. What would it say about a man who did make it through all three schools accepted not only the yoke of a rabbi, but the most famous rabbi in Israel, the grandson of the greatest rabbi that Israel ever honored, what would it say about that man? Special calling, right? Hmm. I don't think that I want to get into it today, but this term, you hear it in Matthew 7, they go, the people are amazed. Where did Yeshua get such authority? You remember hearing that? He doesn't teach like one of those teachers of the law. Where did He get this authority? It's Matthew 7.29, says it. That phrase in Hebrew is Shmiha. And what this means is, the Jews had a system for interpretation. And if you had a new interpretation, a new teaching, it needed to be confirmed by the rabbi who raised you and another rabbi. You needed two or more witnesses, and those two could validate that doctrine. So they asked Jesus constantly, where did you get your shmiha? Because apparently he was a carpenter's son, and maybe because Joseph died early in life, he never applied to a rabbi's yoke. He had the yoke of his father. Where did you get this shmiha? And the people were amazed because they talked like somebody who had it, and they could feel it. But he didn't have the credentials of the day. Remember how he responded to him? This is much later in Matthew. It's Matthew 21. He said, you tell me where John's authority came from. Hishmiha. 
they were scared to death because John didn't come up through the system either, and yet all the people ex- uh, saw him as a prophet. They accepted him as a prophet. And when they wouldn't answer that question, Jesus didn't answer theirs. Turn with me to John 15. Today our religious system is not all of that much different than it was in Jesus' death. The emphasis on learning is not as much there, but the emphasis on credentialing sure is. The emphasis on credentials. You can't preach in our church if you were not ordained in our seminaries. You cannot be accepted among us as an equal brother if you don't agree with us. Where's your paper that proves it? Many of you who are in this room graduated from schools that were credentialing processes for your denomination. You had an experience much like I did. I was at a place in life where I was faced with something. I had been radically born again. Jesus spoke to me audibly and it knocked me down. I go to the pastor that I had at the time. Uh, pastor. He's the president of the Southern Baptist Convention. I what happens. His answer to me was, Son, stay Baptist. That's where all the resources are. I'll credential you. And you do what I tell you to do. I want to be honest, that sounds almost manipulative and controlling, doesn't it? It didn't feel that way. It didn't. It felt to me like an older man who was wiser, who genuinely seemed to love me, was just telling me how to follow the path that he had followed. Except that around that time, I met somebody that could offer me no credentials. They would give me no diploma on a wall that truly was the road less traveled by. I had a chance to go to a seminary and be paid to be there. And in the words of my pastor at the time, be booked as an evangelist with a pretty little girl to sing with me. Exact quote. Or I had a chance to go follow in the footsteps of somebody who would allow me into their life in the morning when they got up, at night when they went to bed, when they walked along the road, when they talked. And I learned more during life experiences than I did from behind the pulpit. And this taught me a way of life, a way of life that goes all the way back to first century Judaism, although probably neither of us knew it at the time. We were just being led by the same spirit that formed Israel. And so he was forming the prince with God within us. Having said that, in John 15, we find these words. You ever tried to start a Harley, kickstart a Harley? Some of you had that experience, some haven't. It can really hurt you if your foot slips off the pedal. It's hard to get that thing to turn over. It's got kind of a loping kind of thing. In fact, my birth father had one. We burned up the starter in it constantly because of that. This message is one of those that is hard to get kick-started, but I promise that this will come together for you. In John 15, starting in the 11th verse, I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Now, a backdrop to this that I I didn't have time to read, to show them the full extent of His love, on the evening that Jesus was to be crucified, the Master got on His hands and knees and washed the feet of the children. 
the full extent of His love. And He said to His disciples, love them, love each other, as I have loved you. In fact, one time He says, I give you a new command. And it's strange because it's not new. It goes all the way back to the first words that were ever spoken to Israel. He says, love them. But the caveat is, in the manner that I've loved you. See, it comes natural to us to show affection to some. They're affectionate to us. You know what is completely unnatural to us? To love someone else at our own expense. Hear what he says. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. My command is this. Love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. What is biblical love? Biblical love after walking with the Messiah would be to lay down your own life for your friends. Now, Christians are big on talking about this. When's the last time somebody had to give you their spot in line at Fiesta, Texas? I have seen fistfights between grown men over who caught the next customer on a parking lot. My very first Christian function ever was a little softball field in Louisiana. And the men who brought me, pastor's sons, pastor's wives, and pastors, got into a fist fight on the softball field over a ridiculous game played with a stick and a ball. The kind of biblical love that we are to be discipled in is the kind that loves each other people even at the cost of your life. Well, we're big on saying, I would give my life for Cassidy. Really? Will you give your time? I would give my life for Charlotte. Well, would you give up the meal that you were just sitting down to eat to go help Charlotte? I will give my life for Steve. Does that mean you'll come home early from vacation because it's to his benefit? What does it mean to lay down your life? Well, what did it mean when you laid down your life for Jesus? It means that you give up your will and your desires for the King of Kings' will and desires. So when He shows us that it is time to pour into Michelle, no cost is too high. In fact, you're going to find out He usually makes it at great cost to the teachers because that's what makes it worthwhile. If it was easy... How many of you ever had a car given to you? Raise your hand if you had a car given to you. Now, don't raise your hands on the next one. Those of you that have had cars given to you and you have had to buy a car, which one did you maintain more? Yeah, see, when something costs you, when it hurts to have to get it, when you see that it is at great sacrifice, you value it more. So God has set this up that when one man is transitioning his life's experiences, his anointing, his calling, his service, to God into you, it usually is at great cost. If not to both of you, certainly to the man who's received it. But you know what? Somebody did it for him at great cost. And in this way, what Jesus prayed in John 17, I pray not only for them, but for those who will believe through their message, has been rolling through the ages. Can you imagine the ridiculous scenario that we would be in if everything that had been taught was copyrighted? Watch how this would work. Praise God, which was first said by a man in the second century named the Hallelujah, which dates all the way back. You get a phrase out of your mouth. Gary Kinchin is watching here today. There's very little in my life that Gary Kinchin did not teach me. 
But if I'm throwing a baseball, I said, look, watch that. Gary Kenshin taught me that. <laughs> hey, watch this. I snapped a football. Gary Kenshin, at what point do you become annoyed? <laughs> and is it enough to acknowledge Gary or do I need to acknowledge that someone taught him and someone taught them and someone taught them? Listen to what John 15 says. I have told you this so that my joy may be that your joy may be complete. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command. I no longer call you servants because a servant does not know his master's business. Instead, I have called you friends. For everything that I learned from my Father, I have made known to you. You know why we don't have to credit the successive generations? It all comes from one source, the author of life. And all of us are happiest. All of us are in our element when what we do is credit Jesus. Then no man glories in His presence. The only one that gives glory is the very representation of God's being. And He deserves it. Now, I told you all of that about the three houses in Israel because I wanted to get to this verse before we move on. Verse 16, you did not choose me, but I chose you. What did that mean in its setting? You did not come and apply to take my yoke upon you. I came and found you and offered it to you. And why would a rabbi give someone their yoke? Because he had studied them and determined something. They are capable of being just like the rabbi. So the King of Kings called you. He called you, Cody. And He called you because He knew that you had the ability to be like Him. And He reminds them it's the most difficult in His life when He's showing them the full extent of His love. You have the ability to do exactly what I'm doing. Did they? Which one of them did not get martyred for the testimony? Say, so, well, John didn't. Oh, yeah, he did. It just wasn't successful. They tried to kill him more than once. It just didn't work. All of them laid down their lives for what Jesus had invested in them. In this, we find something beautiful. The transitioning of all of the knowledge, all of the anointing that God had given Jesus in one form, state, style, or place into His people. And like the medical definition of a transition... It's the onset of the final stage that brings life, birth. When you receive something, when you receive revelation, when you receive teaching, when something's been imparted to you and you now have it, it's time to do something with it. And since it was invested in you, what are you supposed to do? Go invest in someone else. There's a problem with these transitions. I want you to understand that the word transition is a problem in every sense of the word. Cassidy wants to have that baby. Every week that goes, she wants to have that baby more. But at the moment she's transitioning from pregnancy to active labor, she wishes she was never pregnant. You understand what I mean? Jesus, please bring the baby now. Oh God, oh God, it hurts! No. No, I saw it done. It was not difficult. Like Mexican food. Transitions in every sense, are difficult. In fact, there's a transition in this room. It was difficult to do. The carpet to the tile. When you're laying flooring, flooring's easy. 
All exactly the same, and that's how we like it. Cookie cutter. One piece looks just much like the next. But when you have to take a diversity of materials and make them look as if they were put together by a craftsman, the transitions between rooms becomes very difficult. And let me tell you one more thing. Especially in a transition that is a threshold, if it sticks up a little bit too much, you will stub your toes and injure everybody who goes through it. The transitioning process in our lives is a difficult thing because it involves something. It involves emancipation. And emancipation brings the question, but what about me and what if? See, something's invested in us, but when we go to invest it in other people, there is a difficult time period. Are they going to make it if I let go? If I don't let go, what is the consequence? They're immature forever. In fact, if pride rises in this situation, it's something everybody stubs their toe on and becomes difficult and all anybody sees is, at this point in history, there was a transition. But when transition's done right, and we're going to look at that in the Word, it is so subtle you don't even know that it's happening and nobody gets glory except Jesus. I need to do a very scientific thing here. Y'all ready? I mean, Gallup is going to call and want to know how this worked. Jesus, the most famous man in the New Testament, right? Scientific poll. Right now, respond. Who is the second most famous man in the New Testament? Wow, that's amazing. It works every single time. We didn't have to count chads. We didn't have to uh, bring in commissions to determine and recount and count the vote. Immediately, everybody says, Paul. How did Paul get where he was? See, we treat Paul like he dropped out of the sky in a vacuum. And the only thing that was ever imparted to him came through revelation. Paul did. He had surpassing revelation and it's unbelievable. But you know what else he did? He went through those three schools. He sat under rabbis. And you're going to find out in the fellowship of believers, people helped him too. When we look at the finished product that is a man of God, we like to think that somehow they've always been that way. That they had diapers changed, that they had snotty noses, that there was a time period in their life where they struggled with acne. Prophets don't grow up from children, do they? But they do. Turn with me to Acts 4. Oh, that was the preamble. But don't you worry, I'm learning to preach a message in an hour. Kind of. There's grace in the kingdom. The world operates on a system of credit. And what makes transitions difficult for all of us, every human being in here, if you're honest, whether we're talking about your kids transitioning to maturity, whether you're talking about disciples transitioning into ministry, whether you're talking about transitioning in positions in the secular workplace, the problem is that we operate on a system of credit. And I don't mean credit cards. I mean that when somebody establishes something, they want you to know something. Don't throw a hymnal at me. That's why I didn't provide them. We were the first to do this. So we're going to call ourselves the first self-righteous church. We weren't the first, but we were the second. Or, let's leave the first and second out. We're the only true church of. How many times has this been? It's been done so many times that it's so fragmented, you can barely put the genie back in the bottle. The Reformation 
that started off as reform has become a refractory. <laughs> you know? If we can learn to set aside our life, if we can learn to set aside the need for credit, God can move so powerfully through us. Let's look at some men who did this well. In fact, the Word is so good, we'll see what they did well and what they didn't do well. And you know what the benefit of having teachers is? You get close to them, you'll learn from both. You know what's frightening about that for me? I'm teaching you, so you'll learn from both. There's a unique relationship between the teacher and the student. The teacher sees more of the flaws in the student than the student would like. And sometimes the student sees more of the flaws in the teacher than the teacher would like. You know what that's called? Intimacy. Now, we think of intimacy as a warm, cozy speech. Intimacy is when you see into people clearly and you love them anyway. See, one of the things that I learned from my mentors in the faith is to live out loud, to love without limit, to not put on a facade or allow there to be a separation between clergy and laity. This allows people to see you in the anointing and then in something else that I hear that happens in other people's lives. The flesh. Are you all in Acts 4? Okay, we're going to pick up in the 32nd verse. And I'm going to have to get a move on. All the believers, all the believers were in one heart and mind. If you never saw a miracle your whole life long, if you never saw the dead raised, if Jesus never appeared to you in the flesh, but you've ever been in a room with more than one person, and everybody had the same heart and mind, you've seen a miracle. People, if nothing else, are fiercely individualistic. In fact, we want to be accepted by the crowd and at the same time we want to maintain our own distinctiveness. I have one time said about a man who I love desperately, named Wade Sutherland, most of you have heard, I don't know if he's got the same spirit we've got. Right? Real critical. It's easy to be critical when you don't know anything. You know what that meant? He didn't like Greek food. We didn't listen to the same kind of music and our style was a little different. Sometimes we pick people apart based on those distinctions, but we want to be distinct ourselves. So how does that work? We want to remake the whole world in our own image. How godly is that? Us Protestants are fiercely, fiercely independent, and yet we raise our own little papal systems if we're not careful. It happens in every church. Nothing outside of what I teach you, Judah, is acceptable. Right? How many of you have ever been smacked down really hard? Could even be by me. Probably was. For saying something that was just different than the way that I said it. I know in my own life, I fiercely rebuked someone and then found out later I was incredibly wrong. I didn't always go to them and apologize. Sometimes it wasn't possible. My point in this is that there needs to be a transitioning, but you know what there is not? A cloning. We're supposed to transit. Paul said, follow me as I follow Christ. You know what that means? Follow me to the extent or in the same manner that I follow Christ. When we see that Eric has a Bible cover he made, so I'm going to require that all of you make your own Bible covers. That's not following me as I follow Christ. That is cloning. That's cloning. 
My pastor used to call it cookie-cutter Christianity, and you've heard me teach about it a lot. I learned it well. We are not doing that. What we want is to transition what God invested in us into other people without getting glory. Acts 4.32 All the believers were in one heart and mind. Uh, those of you who have been studying Acts, that's homo thumaden. That occurs multiple times in the book of Acts. And every time it occurs, there's miracles. And the Hebrew cognate for it, say I'm giving you your homework answers, is yahad, very similar to ehad. It means a oneness or singleness of purpose. All of the believers were in one heart and mind. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them all. There was no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' And it was distributed to anyone as they had need. I've never seen, I've seen glimpses of what that can be like. We've had time periods in churches in the past, in churches like ours now, where we've seen glimpses of that. But nobody can convince me that the body of Christ in the United States is operating in this way now. How many of you would just toss the keys to your car to anybody in here and not be worried about what happened to it? How many of you give me your keys? Let's put that to the test. Pass my hand. Listen to what happens. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, which means son of exhortation or encouragement, sold the field he owned and brought the money and put it at the apostles' feet. There is a man named Joseph who happens to be a Levite. All priests are Levites. Not all Levites are priests. But nevertheless, to be a Levite is a special distinction among the twelve tribes. And one of the things that it entitles you to is to be supported by the rest of the Israelites. What's more than that is you have no ancestral lands. So if he acquired lands, he had to acquire them through business, trade, or marriage. It means he worked hard for them. He didn't just inherit them. So he sells this puts this at the feet of the apostles, and you never hear the name Joseph again. He's from this point forward in Scripture always known as the son of encouragement. Now, what you need to know about the son of exhortation or encouragement is that this does not mean that you walk into a room and somebody says, My, you look lovely today. This means that he gives you word that produces Life. That's what this word signifies. When it says son of encouragement, it means that he is a person who gives you word that brings life. Why don't we go ahead and turn to Acts 9. What is the most major event that happens in Acts 9? Saul gets converted. We almost say with a certain reverence, don't we? Like he's something different than a regular human being. In fact, Paul is so exalted in our thoughts, and I love him. I love him more than anybody else in the Word, save Jesus. But he's so exalted in our thoughts, we have a difficult time thinking of him learning anything. We have a difficult time thinking that there may be anything that he didn't know. We have a difficult time thinking about him as anything other than 
an exalted apostle, although he never exalted himself. In Acts 9, pick up with me in the 23rd verse. Paul or Saul has become converted. He's begun preaching in Damascus. And uh, we're now in the 23rd verse. After many days he had gone by, after many days had gone by, the Jews conspired to kill him. But Saul learned of their plan. Day and night they kept close watch on the city gates in order to kill him. But his followers took him by night and lowered him in a basket through an opening in the wall. Let me ask you something. Does the fact that you have followers make you a leader? See, I had been born again a week. And there were almost as many people in this room in my very first apartment listening to me teach. Been born again a week. I didn't know anything. It was okay. They didn't either. <laughs> Having followers does not make you a leader. Now, God, because He loved me, brought me into contact with someone that when I watch their way of life, something very voluntary happens. If it's forced, it's rejected. But very voluntary happens. I watch the anointing of man's life. I shared bits of my life. He is. And I said, you know what? I have followers, but I am not fit to lead. And I submitted myself walking closely behind so that his dust kicked up on me. And what that gave me the ability to do was avoid injuring people and hurting myself in the process. It gave me the ability to learn from someone else's actions. Is it possible that Paul ever had that experience? Let us see. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried... Maybe I'm not hearing me. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples. (laughs) I love Joe. Joe didn't have to try to join the church. I told him, if I see you three times, as far as I'm concerned, you're a member. But can you imagine if Joe had come and said, I'd like to be a disciple. Join the disciples. We said, nah. (laughs) Now maybe in decades past that could have happened to Joe. It wasn't a real church, but it could have happened. These days, the only time you see that happen in church is when you've experienced the baptism in the Holy Ghost and they haven't. They said, nah. (laughs) And by the way, would you drop our denomination from your title? He tried to join the disciples. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing that he really was a disciple. (laughs) Why didn't they believe him? His reputation days before had been so putrid. Now, I know we can't be preaching to anybody in here. But did your life look so ugly that when Jesus really did come in and transform you, people went, let's wait and see? Because mine did. Mine did. My wife, who's sitting back there, I told her, I have been born again. And she went, we'll see. I was walking down the hall, I was walking down the hall of a school and a little girl looking at me, looking up like that. She said, what's wrong with you? I said, baby, I got born again. Didn't you think that could happen for me? She goes, Nope. Saul, how unpopular do you think this young man is? Imprisoned, killed, tortured, at the hands of Saul or with the approval of Saul. How accepting do you think the church body is? 
But somebody who God has raised up who's already demonstrated the ability to give away everything that he owns of value in this world, whose life's calling is to give life-giving word to people, does something here. Look at these next words. When he came to Jerusalem, he tried to join the disciples, but they were all afraid of him, not believing he really was a disciple. But, now you've got to hear me out here. I love buts in the Bible. Matthew, this has one T, not two. But, Barnabas took him and brought him to the apostles. He told them how Saul was on his journey and had seen the Lord and that the Lord had spoken to him and how in Damascus he had preached fearlessly in the name of Jesus. Who had to vouch for you in your life? What did Saul lack? He had seen Jesus, but what did he lack? The reputation of a good man who could stand with him and say, you need to give this one a chance. See, at a time in my life when people told me I should go cut grass or clean houses... Somebody stood with me and said, Hey, son, they've told me the same thing. And you know what? The God of the universe who's thrown me from this side of the ocean to that side of the ocean has called you. And it was life. It was so much life that 15 years later, I'm still doing it. And it's bringing life to you. Who stood and vouched for you? And was it at a time in your life you deserved it? Where did Barnabas learn such a thing? He learned it because Jesus chose his disciples, his talmudim, when the rest of the world rejected him. And he said, you can do it. You can be just like me. But Barnabas, how about that? Turn with me to Acts 11. What all was contributed to Paul's life? He had surpassing revelation. I'm not going to argue that. But he also had three schools that he went through. And he sat under another man's yoke from 14 to 30. Oh, I know. Philippians says that he counts it all as nothing. Hear me. When compared to what Jesus revealed. I want you to hear this. That does not mean it was all garbage. I've I've said it, but I was wrong. It means that Nothing in his life, no, no thing compares of value to Jesus. Moses, educated in all the ways of Egypt, but when he has the burning bush experience, he could say the same thing. Did that mean there was no value in what he learned? Not at all. It's a, it's a way of speaking that shows how important this event is. I don't have time to do it today, but I can show you personally where Gamaliel's words are recorded in history. And Paul quotes him throughout his letters. We serve a God who is not scared to claim truth wherever it's found. If Gandhi said it and it is true, it's still true. And if Gamaliel said it and it's true, Paul used it. We have such a way of vilifying anybody that didn't agree with us. Even when I share that testimony about my Baptist pastor, in years past I have vilified him as almost an evil man. He messed up horribly. Messed up horribly in some ways. But I want you to understand something. He also did some good things in my life. I do not want to go down in history naming people doubting Thomas. I would rather remember the things that they did well, like the first man who called Jesus both Lord and God. I don't want to remember John Mark as the reputation for the quitter. I want to remember him as the man who wrote the book of Mark. 
How do you want to be remembered? How many of you wear a label that you got in the seventh grade? You ever sitting at a table laugh and milk come out your nose? You ever have an unwholesome nickname? Can't even repeat that one, can I? It's not a casserole. Uh, sorry. How long did it take you to outlive it? Did God change your name when you got born again so you didn't have to? He didn't, did He? In fact, He lets us struggle with that old reputation, that old life reminding us. Not many of you were of noble birth. And this gives us a profound sense of perspective and mercy for other people, doesn't it? I'm thankful for all of the things that I screwed up so badly because it gives me mercy when I'm raising a group of young men and women. Because I tell you, this side of the veil... You're amazed that somebody can be so dense sometimes. That's the God's honest truth. But all I have to do is think about the men and women that poured into me and how dense I must have been. And then all I have to do is look in the Scripture and see that Jesus said, Are you still so dull? He said, Oh, this is the way it always been. When you see it, you see it. When you don't, you're dull. Huh. How about that? So uh, let's then go to Acts 11. I'm going to have to wrap this up. I don't really have to. That's really nice about having your own church. You don't really have to do anything. But the children's church workers will riot. In Acts 11, I want you to hear this in the 22nd verse. The news of this, a revival in Antioch, the news of this reached the ears of the church at Jerusalem and they sent Barnabas to Antioch. Who did the church at Jerusalem send to Antioch? Barnabas. The right side of the room heard me. The left side still sleeping. Who got sent to Antioch? Barnabas. Barnabas was commissioned. Go to Antioch. Barnabas commissioned. When he arrived and saw the evidence of God's grace, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all of their hearts. He was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. And a great number of people were brought to the Lord. A man full of the Holy Spirit, faith, and a good man who brings others to the Lord. Could we at the very least say he's a preacher? See, we always call Barnabas, oh, he's an encourager. And we relegate him to helps ministry. We say that he's like a kickstand who helps hold up an alpha male men of God, right? But here he's commissioned, he goes, and he does well. You know what else Barnabas is called in the Scripture? A teacher, a prophet, an apostle. When we think about how great Paul is, we forget that there was a teacher, prophet, apostle, good man, spirit, full of faith, who was there vouching for him when nobody would let him in their house. We forget where we come from. How is it that we're able to forget what Barnabas did for Paul? Because Barnabas did his job well and he required no credit for it. Hmm. Watch what happens here. My page turned. I got so excited. All right. Um, some of them, however, that's not where we're at. 22. News of this reach. 25. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. It's really debatable how long a time period has passed. But it seems to most people as if nearly 14 years from his conversion have passed. Not quite, but nearly. What does that mean that this man was doing the whole time? That's really interesting. We say, well, he was receiving revelation, really. Fourteen years he was in one long vision? Or do you think that maybe God was giving him a chance to build an outstanding reputation? 
that God was giving him a chance to fulfill the requirements of ministry that he placed on others? Do you think maybe during that time he was receiving more instruction? Because he came to the Lord with more knowledge than probably all of the other apostles combined. But you know what he didn't have? He had not walked in the dust of the followers of Jesus yet. He had been educated and credentialed in all the ways, cultures, and systems that God created in Israel. But he did not have years of experience of walking with Jesus yet. I know what it's like to be powerfully born again and feel ready to conquer the world. But then come to the realization, I don't know much beyond what God's done for me. And I want to tell you, you're not fit to lead other men until you have been led by other men. Then Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. Who brought Saul to Antioch? Barnabas did. How many times have you ever read this and read it that way? Barnabas vouched for him. Barnabas, after many years have passed, goes and finds him and includes him in the commission that was given to Barnabas. In fact, you'll see in the ordering of the words throughout the chapters, Barnabas is always first. Saul is always second. Until the transition occurs. The way of... And by the way, when I got born again, the very first, very first person to instruct me in the Word was Matthew Pirro. Very first. We were friends. He's a kid that almost lived in my house. I was married. He wasn't. We had not yet, yet met my pastor. In fact, when I realized I needed to be baptized, I said, Matthew, baptized me. He was my first instructor in the Lord to the extent that he baptized me. Our roles in the kingdom. Your student relationship quickly. I've been Matthew's pastor. How you can do that when pride is absent from the equation? I've lived long enough, even in the secular workforce, to have people work for me and later have to work for them. You know what's interesting about that? You remember whether you wrote them up for certain things. And... <laughs> they go on to teach there for a year. Barnabas is the commissioned person and uh, Saul uh, helps him with it. And they, uh, they, they taught and did well. Now, in Acts 12, look at 25th verse. When Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, when who and who? Barnabas and Saul. We don't ever say that though. When you talk about the missionary journeys, when you talk about the two men, tell me the truth. How do you phrase it? You phrase it the way I've said it to you. Paul and Barnabas. The Scripture doesn't phrase it that way. Phrases it as Barnabas and Paul. At least for another two chapters, then a transition occurs. Uh, Move to Acts 13. By the way, in the 25th verse, it says, when, uh, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. <laughs> we can remember John Mark as the guy who turns back, because that's happening. You know what I've begun to emphasize in this? Barnabas, a great transitional leader, he never surrounds himself with the perfected ones. He surrounds himself with those who need him the most. You ever been jealous about how much attention somebody got from the pastor? Maybe they needed it more than you did. If your jealousy runs too rampant, maybe you need it more than they do. Careful what you fight for. You may not want my attention if that's how you get it. 
The right leaders are never surrounded by perfect people. They're surrounded by the people that need them. In Acts 13, what we see is uh, in the church at Antioch, there were prophets and teachers. Barnabas, and then lists some others and goes all the way down to Saul. But this is a time period where Saul has learned, he's grown, he's been vouched for by a man in the faith with a great reputation, and he has walked hand in hand with him, learning from each other's actions, being encouraged by things. And we start to see the young man gain prominence. And when I say young man, they're probably the same age. Boy, doesn't that make it more difficult? In fact, Paul steps into his God-given role as he blinds a sorcerer named Elimus. And you see him step to a position of prominence in that regard, but look at the 14th chapter. By the way, how is it that you think Barnabas would feel at this point? He's used to being the one who speaks. He's used to being the one who invited the other man in on all of his activities. But now all of the sudden, this guy who got invited is starting to become prominent. Well, Barnabas had been prepared for this his whole life. He started off his Christian walk by giving everything he had away. What is it that he wants to fight for? Credit? If he gets credit, then he won't get it from Jesus. Barnabas' goal is to transition everything that he can to Saul so Saul can do it for other people and Barnabas can move on to John Mark. In Acts 14, look at the 12th verse. This is uh, at Lystra and Derby. Barnabas they called Zeus. By the way, what is Zeus in the Greek pantheon? He's the chief among the gods. Barnabas they called Zeus, and Paul they called Hermes because he was the chief speaker. It's interesting. I've always emphasized that Paul was the chief speaker, and it's true. <laughs> but Barnabas gets the title Zeus. Hermes worked for Zeus. Having said that, what we're seeing, though, is that Barnabas is more and more comfortable standing off into the background because this young man has got something that he needs to be able to run with. doesn't mean Barnabas is done. It means there's another project. Because of this, they reach a place in Acts 15, starting in the 32nd verse. By the way, as late as Acts 15.12, Barnabas is still being mentioned first, but by the time we get to Acts 15.36, it says, Sometime later, Paul said to Barnabas, Let us go back and visit the brothers and all the towns where we preach the word of the Lord and see how they're doing. Barnabas had always invited Saul in on his gig. Now Saul's inviting Barnabas in on his gig. Barnabas wanted to take John. Why would he want to take John? Because Barnabas has got that ability to speak life-giving words into someone. And he takes flawed individuals and he helps transition them into powerful men of God. Is Barnabas wrong for wanting to take John? No, probably not. It's in Barnabas' calling in nature to need to take John. Barnabas does not have on his business card, I am the son of encouragement. It simply is what Barnabas is. He can't help but do that. Paul's calling is different. Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark with them, but Paul did not think it wise to take him. Is Paul wrong? Probably not. This young man turned back on their last missionary journey. Why risk it again? 
How is it that they can both not be wrong? Don't we live in a scenario where everything has to have a right and wrong? I want to encourage you to embrace a different concept. Perhaps they're both right and God is using this opportunity to multiply His kingdom. And one of the ways that He does this is through transition. But occasionally when men's flesh gets involved in transition, it stubs toes. And this becomes a sharp dispute where it should have been a handshake. It says, Barnabas wanted to take John, also called Mark, with him, but Paul did not think it wise to take him. But because he had deserted them in Pamphylia and had not continued with them in the work, they had such a sharp disagreement that they parted company. Barnabas took Mark and sailed for Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and left commended by the brothers to the grace of the Lord. Last scripture I'm going to have you turn to, but you need to turn to it. Don't, don't not. Go to Colossians. Who first vouched for Paul? Barnabas. Barnabas, without any question. Listen to what Paul learns to do. Colossians 4, starting in the 10th verse. My fellow prisoner Aristarchus sends you his greetings, as does Mark, the cousin of Barnabas. You have received instructions about him. If he comes to you, welcome him. Hey, guys. You may have heard that uh, Mark and I don't get along so well, but you got my last instructions. You receive him and welcome him. Jesus, who is called Justice, (coughs) I changed my name to, also sends greetings. These are the only Jews among my fellow workers for whom the kingdom of, of... I'm sorry, the only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, and they have proved a comfort to me. Epaphras, who is one of you, also sends... Epaphras, who is one of you and a servant of Christ Jesus, sends greetings. He is always wrestling in prayer for you, that you may stand firm in all the will of God, mature and fully assured. I vouch for him that he is working hard for you and for those at Laodicea. What we come away from this with is Barnabas taking John Mark and John Mark becoming the kind of man who writes the Gospel of Mark. We also see in the 16th chapter of Acts, which I don't have time to teach you, but became the foundation for this ministry, that through this dispute, although it looked like it involved the two men, it was God. Because John Mark gets raised up as a gospel writer. That wouldn't have happened if if these two men had stayed together. And what happens with Paul? Paul chose Silas for his work. Silas, who happened to be a Roman citizen, where Barnabas was not. He also picks up Timothy, a young man who did not have to be circumcised, but was willing to shed his blood for the gospel. And the very next thing that happens is Paul has a vision, and they all determine that it's God's will for them to go somewhere, and they end up in jail and beaten up, but released because of their Roman citizenship. We serve a God who is big enough that if we will get our pride out of the equation. He will transition everything that He has given you into other people and then scatter you out like salt on a plate, giving you each what you need. Barnabas gets John Mark. Paul gets Silas. And it's exactly what they needed for the next stage in their life. At some point, saints, the church has got to grow up. At some point, we have got to learn that our job is to invest in other people. And that that investment eventually involves taking off training wheels and emancipating. Having said that, how difficult it is when you face it. 
Mandy one time spoke to me about the day in which she'll need to leave our church. I cry at the thought. What I was so confident that men in my life could, should, all of these things do. Yeah, when I'm faced with it, uh, it's about, about like being a teenager and looking at your parents and saying, well, when I, I will never. Yeah, until you have to. Hillel was the preeminent teacher in Israel just prior to the birth of Jesus. My favorite quote of Hillel says this, Exaltation is my humiliation, but my humiliation is exaltation. The best thing that can happen to us in our lives is that we become less that Jesus might become more. And the best way you can do it is by pouring everything God's invested into you into other people and refusing recognition for it. And we will stand before the King and there will be fields that you never planted that you reap harvest from. There will be people that you never met that you are rewarded for. The vision of this ministry is to see a single life change at a time. The vision of this ministry is to raise up people who will be transitional leaders, who will take everything that I invest in you and that was invested in me and go do it again. And with every successive generation, the revelation better grow or you're not doing your job. My hope for all of you is that you surpass me. But like my pastor's done with me, I'm going to make it very hard because I'm going to continue to study and I'm going to try to outwork you. You better set a furious pace. Many of you have more years left than I do. Some of you don't. Use what you have wisely. Our job is to take the talents that have been invested in us and do 30, 60, and 100 fold. What father does not want his son to outshine him? This is the very heart of a pastor. I'm investing in you as was invested in me. I've added to it. You will add to it. And the kingdom of God will grow in this way. The question is, what will you do with what's been invested in you? Will you perform out there what you've practiced in here? Or will you simply sit and be entertained? Stand to your feet, saints.